we have a fantastic guest. We have Christopher Plain that is joining us. And uh, Christopher, um, actually, first, I want to introduce uh, Louis Borges, which is returning today on uh, UAP Studies. How's it going, Louis? It's going really well, brother. Thanks for having me back. Uh, it's been a great couple episodes recently, and it's you know, the roster this year is insane. And uh, today's guest is no different. We uh, like to get people on that have notoriety and are well-known and have a lot to say and uh, also have a, an open mind about things, too, not too not too one-sided. So I'm really excited for Christopher Plain. Let's hear what he's got to say. All right. Christopher Plain is the head writer at The Debrief. He's working alongside three notable North American investigative journalists, such as Tim McMillan, MJ Benias, hopefully I spelled that correctly or uh, said that correctly, and then Micah Hanks as well. Uh, The Debrief is well known for breaking news stories before the mainstream media. So first and foremost, I just want to ask you, what is the origin, mission, and method for The Debrief, for the people that don't know this? Are you asking me, Christopher Plain? (laughs) I'm asking you, Christopher Christopher Plain. Plain. Please, by the way, real quick, guys, my friends call me Chris, so please call me Mr. Plain. no, yeah, okay. I'm obviously <laughs> joking around. No, please just call me Chris. Um, so uh, the debrief was actually founded by the three gentlemen you just mentioned, and you did pronounce all three names correctly. And uh, oh, good. Mike and Tim and MJ are three standouts in this field. You know, they were reporting on UAP and UFOs even before the 2017 uh, revelations. And Mike has been hosting his own program for years and is just as respected as you get in the field. Uh, most people I think know MJ Benias. You see him on a lot of history channel shows and things like that. And he's a investigative journalist. He used to write for Vice and uh, Popular Mechanics and some other places. And uh, same with the course, Lieutenant for a retired Lieutenant Tim McMillan. And uh, he's a former police investigator and he's kind of the head of the ship. And those three guys founded this thing and I found them eight days after the thing started. So, yeah, it actually kicked off. I was, uh, I'm an author. So I have a stand-up comedy background. I write novels, uh, have some fantasy novels out. I have a science fiction novel coming. And like everybody, it was the pandemic. I was looking for something to do with my time. And I've been following UFOs on and off throughout my life. And the the, the, uh, Unidentified show was just starting its second season that summer. And I said, what the heck? I went on Twitter and started poking around, seeing what the conversation about UFOs was. And I I found myself interacting with Tim McMillan from time to time about what they were doing over there. And there was this big buildup. I don't know if you remember it. There was a, a big buildup and a big tease to November 30th when that thing launched a little over a year ago. And like everyone else, I was there. I was there on that first day when the big story came out about all the things the Navy is seeing. Uh, I think it's fast movers, something or other was the name of the story, but all the stuff they're seeing underwater, around their ships, all that. And I was blown away, but the quality of the journalism, the quality of the writing, what they were doing. And on the, the eighth day of business, Uh, I had written something for a place called UAP Research that was no longer around, and MJ had seen it, and he reached out to me and said, would you be interested in doing some writing over here at the debrief? And uh, I said, you know, I'll give it a try. I have a lot of interest in UAPs. It's something I followed throughout my life, 
But uh, I told him, I said, I'm more of a science and tech nerd. I'd rather write in that arena. And he said, that is actually what we're looking for. He said, between Micah, MJ, and I, and of course they have Jazz Shaw writing over there. Uh, Ryan Sprague writes from time to time. So we had this whole slew of UAP experts writing on the subject. So they brought me in to write about science. And <clears throat> although that is the majority of what I write about, as you guys know, the last year has seen some pretty crazy things as far as UAPs in science, like the Galileo project or the shift by NASA to get involved in it. A lot of these things that have happened. So even as a science writer on the science beat, I found myself writing about uh, Bill Nelson and NASA's, uh, you know, looking into this. I find myself writing about Avi Loeb and Galileo, the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies, and Ted Rowe, and all these people that are really changing the conversation around UAP from more of a paranormal one and a traditionally more of a maybe fringe conversation to a mainstream science one. And I found myself right in the middle of the game, whether I started out to uh, to go there or not. And I'm glad that you brought up the science mind because I consider myself a science mind as well. I was a, a science major in school. I was uh, supposed to be a med student oh, and okay. a doctor and uh, my life turned into an entrepreneurial one instead. But uh, I've always been someone that's, you know, show me the proof type thing or, you know, apply some real science. And if you look at quantum physics and that type of thing, things start to get not so crazy anymore. So the people that I've really been kind of inspired by are guys like Bob Lazar and even Stephen Greer. You know, he's a an emergency room physician. Yep. You know, you have to have a lot of schooling and a lot of training and a, a proper mind about you if you're going to be saving people's life in the ER and then just gets his interest peaked and then starts getting more and more into it. And then now all the way, you know, he was instrumental with the National Press Club and really sure. trying to bring that out for people to so I think he was a catalyst with that. And then, you know, when you have, he talks about, you know, zero point gravity and things like that. And you look at someone like Bob Lazar, who basically is filling in the pieces that Stephen Greer was missing. Like, yeah, they, they run off element 115 and it would make sense that they would have to create some type of a gravity bubble or something like that. So when you have these really strong science brains and they start making a lot of sense with things you already dig and you're already into and, it kind of makes it hard to be very um, pessimistic anymore. You know, it, it sparks that within. And uh, I think that's kind of what's bringing it more into the forefront too, is legitimate minds. Like you said, people from NASA are now saying, Hey, this isn't as crazy as we think, you know, it's, it's rolling pretty nicely now. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think uh, without going too far afield here, you, you brought up Stephen Greer and I always like to remind people being an old guy, I'm in my early fifties that, uh, Stephen Greer was really important in this conversation. Stephen Greer was really important to that change. And you mentioned the press club in 2001. Uh, I, I tell people this all the time. In the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, this was a very slow-moving topic. There was very little going on. If anything, you were getting a lot of fiction around it. You were getting a lot of alien autopsy videos that may or may not be true, or X-Files, or these sort of things that were great for entertainment, but there wasn't a lot of progress on the on what I consider to be the main discussion, which is people seeing things in the skies that seem to be real craft doing things that uh, craft that we have don't seem to be able to do. And that was a huge thrust of what Greer had. So he had some people that 
uh, maybe were involved with crash retrievals or some of those other things. But the vast majority of those witnesses he brought to that 2001 press club event were ex-pilots, ex-military, uh, uh, ex-FAA types uh, that had these amazing experiences. So uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think he should be lost in the shuffle. I think what's really- Even our former Canadian uh, Minister of Defense, Paul Hellyer, he was involved as well. So absolutely, uh, as Canadians up here, you know, we recognize that, that that's a big <laughs> deal, you know? And you know, what's interesting, I, I was just reading the Chris Mellon piece that uh, he wrote for the debrief recently. And he mentions in there that the interesting relationship Canada has with this, because all of the stuff that's tracked through NORAD is classified down here in the US, so we can't see it, and we can't Freedom of Information Act request it. But apparently Canadians, oh, really? but apparently Canadians can because of the dynamics of NORAD. And I didn't, I don't remember how he laid it all out in the article, but that was one of the interesting things that Yes, Canadian citizens have the ability to try and FOIA, for instance, uh, like the, the Nimitz incident or the Princeton incident or these sort of things. If they happened in an area that was covered by NORAD because Canada is part of that and operates part of that, yeah, there's apparently a mechanism for Canadian citizens to try and FOIA the information that we can't get down here. Well, Canada is, that. Canada yeah, is a hotspot. We've both had our own experiences in different ways, you know, and uh, yeah. I, there's a lot of people in the, in the field up here. And if you even if you go on social media, there's so many groups. Uh, Jason's part of an investigative group out as well with MUFON and everything else. Oh, so it's a big movement. It's just as uh, big here, if not bigger. And as well in the UK, you know, we had Philip Mantle on mm -hmm. last episode and um, you know, this is not something that's just ending here. European governments are opening their doors to things and, it seems to, uh, I asked Philip Mantle, why doesn't it feel like disclosures happen with all these Tic Tac videos and gimbal videos? Like, why aren't we jumping up and down? And I've even said it to Jason, but it's my impatience, you know, like we're getting sure. there. This is pretty good, pretty good momentum so far. Well, and that's something I wouldn't want to lose to. I tell people this all the time. I say, you know, along with that slow moving molasses and that, and that big event in 2001, it went back to a relatively slow process for a long time. So 2017 to 2022, these four years and a couple of months between those first releases of those videos, it's like hyperspeed. Stuff is happening every week and every month. Any one of these advancements, the videos coming out, the military acknowledging they're true, the Navy setting up protocols so pilots can now officially report these things up the chain of command, the various movements within American government to have uh, UAP offices, so many things. The, the head of astronomy at Harvard setting up a program to look for UFOs in the atmosphere. All of these things, any one of those would have been the biggest UFO story of nine, the 1990s or the biggest UFO story of the 2000s. So to have all of these things happening in literally just a little over four years, and, and the term I use all the time is the momentum. It's the momentum is growing, not shrinking. You know, so uh, I see more countries, more involvement. The stuff we hear behind the scenes at the debrief of the, the countries that are poised to get involved, the governments that are thinking about getting involved, and the people that are working all of that, this is really becoming more of a global effort. And I, I think it's just the reality, guys, that we're having a serious discussion 
that was needed to had needed to be had in the 50s and 60s, but the world wasn't ready for it. We just, you know, humans hadn't even been on the moon yet. Uh, the idea of planets around other stars was complete fiction. The idea of those planets being in the habitable zone was complete fiction. There was so much that just was unknown. The world really wasn't ready. So for a long time, this was set aside in because of fears of the Cold War or because of fears of terrorism, other things. But I think society is sophisticated enough. Education, we're just so much more informed than we were at that time that I think it's just we're, we're finally having the real discussion within the scientific community, within the government community, within the military community. And all of those things, all of those entities are looking at it the way they should have been looking at it for a long time and are finally able to. So, Chris, do you think there's like a major shift now in the scientific community about this? Like, when when did that shift happen? Because it used to be ridiculed. Oh, yeah. I, and now it's like... So here's what I think. So think of like an exploding volcano, right? So there's a bunch of this built up pressure and built up magma and built up things underneath. So when the volcano explodes, you could say, hey, when did that pressure get to the point to blow the top off? But what I see when I talk to scientists, because that is my job at the debris, is I talk to researchers at uh, private companies like General Electric or people that are on DARPA contracts, people that are working for Air Force Research Labs, uh, you know, Lockheed Skunk Works, as well as NASA and government organizations. And what you find when you talk to these people, especially people that are younger than me, people that are in their 30s and 40s, or even some scientists uh, that are in their 20s, when you talk to them, they're just in a different world than, than people were in the 20th century in their mindset with this. So it's the number one thing I get asked about. I can be talking to a researcher on the phone about plasma fusion, and they're an expert in plasma fusion, and that's what they work on, and they're working on a new way to, to you know, create plasma energy in the lab and, and uh, create fusion energy. And at some point in the phone call, they will always say to me, hey, so you work at the debris, right? And they, yeah, so um, when are we going to see the triangle picture? Or when are we gonna see these videos that Elizondo and Mellon keep talking about? These are the most common question I get asked. And I get confided a lot like you guys did where people say, look, I've had my own experiences. And some of them are downright freaky. You know, Some of them are downright like a sphere flew over my head, stopped 10 feet above me and then exploded into a million pieces. And again, like a mainstream scientist making a six-figure salary at a big university doing mainstream research, pulling me aside, you know, metaphorically on the phone and saying, hey, I want to tell you what I saw or the experience my wife and I had when we were on a trip. So right. I just think we're in a whole new world. Students are writing stuff about this as graduate theses. They're writing stuff about what could the propulsion be at these UAPs? What could the mechanisms be? So I think the, the difference is, and it's a saying my wife uses all the time, old people with old ideas die and new people with new ideas are born. And I just think we're literally in a different world. I think people that grew up with that, ah, there's no way it could be aliens. There's no way it could be something from another dimension. 
time travelers. Scientists are looking at all those things saying, well, none of those doors are closed. None of those doors are closed. All of those options are on the table. How viable each one is, how realistic each one is, that's for scientists to determine. That's their job. And that's to gather evidence and do those things. So while the military is looking at it and going, do we have a threat? While the major uh, aerospace uh, organization in the US, the AAIA, is looking at it and saying, do we have danger for passenger safety? And while the NASA may be looking at it as what is in our skies, scientists are looking at it just purely from that scientific, do we have something here? Do we have an anomaly? And what is it? So we have it being looked at from 10 different directions, not just one Stanton Friedman in the 1970s or 80s kind of renegade. But that's what I grew up with was there would be maybe one person out there. There'd be one Linda Moulton Howe putting a book out about crop circles and cattle mutilations in the 80s. And that's that book would be gold. You would have it for years because there wasn't anything else coming. Or if it was, it was a rehash of Roswell or a rehash of something that you've heard before. That's not the case now. Every day you can go on the internet and find a new magazine article, a new story. You can find things written by researchers. You can go to Black Vault and see new goodies from John Greenwald all the time. There is so much coming. It just feels like whether there's a plan behind this or it's just really happening organically, which is what I think, I think it's just a changing of the mindset. You know, think of the Me Too movement and think of the way a huge change happened from the way old school business was done to the 21st century mindset of we don't do things behind closed doors. We don't believe in these casting couches and these closed rooms and these sort of things. And that got brought to the surface. And I guarantee you in the offices of Hollywood, business is done very different now than it was done even 20 years ago. I think that's what we're seeing in this. I just think we're seeing American people, especially young people, just won't sit still for things being done in a smoky, quiet back room and being told, hey, we're protecting you from the bad guys. Let us worry about it. The American people are going, and Canadian people as well are going, we don't settle for those answers anymore. We're adults. Tell us the truth. Yeah. It seems like it's, it for me anyway, because I when I got involved in researching and watching things, like you said, it's old information. You're reading about Roswell, Area 51, and then where where, where you go, like where's the, the, the new information? But if you think about it, it's almost like, yes, we think differently now, but it's because of what happened, right? So 1952, we're in the same place we are now. There's sightings, they're mechanical in nature, they display impossible characteristics, and so the government agrees to investigate. And they have like a customer facing end of the go- of the government. You know, they look into it, what they do with it or not, whether it was run properly or not. It's a whole other discussion. Sure, sure. But it's the same as now. It's that momentum hasn't gone away because these things keep happening. And I think because of that, that generation, you know, you look at someone like Philip Mantle. He's an older guy. He was on last week. But it, when he was a kid, that was very just beginning. But it's like that generation believed enough that that us now we can sort of carry that forward. It's nowhere near as crazy to think like that than it would have been for them. So it Absolutely. must have started something, and it's literally taken sixty years plus to get this amount of momentum because of how 
be pushed down and sequestered. And even when you get, you know, unrest, um, uh, uh, unrestricted documents or undisclosed documents, half of them are redacted, right? Yep. They, they declassify it and there's really nothing there on the sheet that's worth anything. So it's, it's burned so slowly that it's taken that long just to get to here. Yeah, you so th- I think it is uh, m- many generational. There's a lot of old guys into it and <laughs> even kids younger than us. Yeah. Oh, no, no doubt about it. And I think, guys, I think a big part of that is because there's new stuff. You know, uh, in August of this last year, I was at an online convention I mentioned earlier, and it's called the um, AIA. It's the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. But it is the largest single organization for engineers in that business. So aeronautical engineers or astronautical, basically people that work on rockets, airplanes, spaceships, things like that. And there are over 30,000 members. I mean, this is a huge organization. And they had a wow. and they had a session at their annual conference. They do a annual conference. And literally some of those sessions are about like, how do we get more seats in the airplane without making it too, like it can be anything. It can be, uh, we're trying a new paint on airplanes because uh, it's less, uh, f- it's more fire resistant. But one of the sessions they had was a, was a UAP safety session. And it was really interesting to sit in on that session because a couple of things really came out of that. First of all, just the, the engineers in the room. And again, everyone on the call but me was engineers, all right? And so all of these engineers in this Zoom call are talking about a, a, a scientific approach to the UAP problem in a serious way. There weren't people in there joking about it. There weren't people like laughing it off. There was no X-Files music. And the one other person that wasn't a scientist in that call was uh, pilot Ryan Graves. I'm sure you guys have heard his name. He's come up a few times in the UAP arena. And what Ryan said, and I got a chance to speak to him at that meeting and, and wrote a story about it back in August, What he said was, this is happening all the time now. So Navy ships, I think the term Chris Mellon used in his article for the debrief was, Navy ships are being regularly swarmed by UAPs that are performing these unique things. And every time we send a plane up to catch them, they zoom away. We, we can catch or see them on radar. We can see them with the naked eye doing stuff, but we cannot zoom up there and get up to them. And Ryan said at that same meeting that privately, Air Force pilots are telling him the same thing. And of course, anyone who read the big Chris Mellon article, that's a critical piece that the Air Force is not participating in this. The point yeah. I'm trying to make is the reason this is a big story now it's not just because Lou Elizondo got some tapes together in the late, you know, early 2000s, 2010s, and released them to the media. There's no doubt that that got the ball rolling. But now that that ball's rolling, what we're hearing is, I'm seeing this all the time. We're hearing it from commercial pilots, military pilots around the world. It's not a less situation. It's a more situation. Hmm. No, the uh, but do they think that the UAPs are like a real threat at this so point? So like, that was think- the whole thrust of that session. What Ryan Graves, the pilot, said, and I think it was right at the end of that article I wrote was, 
he said, I'm surprised we haven't had a collision already between a pilot and one of these things. They're near misses all the time with our airplanes. And in my opinion, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. It's just a matter of time before you guys read in the news, fighter jet crashes into UAP. And he said that. He said that right in the meeting, and it's in my article about it. So, uh, yeah, right. there's uh, it's a it's a threat to military pilots. It is a threat to civilian pilots. And again, just a safety issue. Just these near misses are enough that even if the UAP super advanced and knows how to keep from a collision from happening, pilots are humans behind the controls of these planes, and they're reacting to these near misses. And that reaction could cause a problem. They've even had recent near misses in the water. Was there not a submarine that crashed into something a little while back? And yep. they're, they're just like, yeah, we don't know what that was. And they swept the whole story under the rug. Like, what happened with that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that was uh, that that premier article I mentioned for the debrief when we first came out by Tim McMillan was all about that, was about what the Navy is seeing underwater moving yeah. in erratic ways and at extreme speeds. And, that's a big yeah. deal. Like water, water <laughs> is, is thick. It's viscous. It's a, it's not a medium like air, you know, heat builds up even big propellers that they put on ferry boats and oil tankers. They have to have a certain angle. Otherwise it's called cavitation. Yep. It, the vibration will make bubbles and it'll actually erode the propeller away. Yep. So moving underwater at any type of speed is almost more remarkable than moving in air yep. because oh, yeah. air is a much thinner medium and the higher you go, the thinner it is and the easier it is to navigate. So if things are going 500 knots underwater, that's crazy. That's more impressive to me than, you know, you see an orb flying through the sky, right? Sure. Oh yeah. I mean, just from a basic physics standpoint, flying out in space, you have de minimis resistance because the, the spread out density of matter in our atmosphere, you have a lot uh, more density. So that's why we can fly. And then, yeah, when you go underwater, you're talking a lot heavier, denser uh, environment. So uh, yeah, the idea of something traveling literally anything over about 130 miles an hour underwater, even with our current technology is really insane. So something yeah, going the missiles can't even go faster knots. than that. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah, our best torpedoes don't have that kind of speed, nope. so we wouldn't I, be able to shoot it anyway if we tried. <laughs> you got that right. That's that's my understanding as well. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the military has tried to shoot at these things. Yeah, yeah. Guaranteed. guaranteed. What seems to fascinate me about this is that the the whole craft seems to be conscious. So that's why when people approach it, it's like the, just the way that they fly, it's almost like they could read the minds of the pilots and even underwater, so, like something's happening where these crafts have like this more amazing ability to see things all around them than our own pilots. They're near misses to us. We yeah. think it's a near miss. We're like, oh shit, that thing came so close. It's just messing around. It's piece yeah. of cake for that. You know, we're the ones freaked out. Yep. Yep. Oh, and you know, if you operate under the possibility that, say, for instance, you're dealing with an AI probe, right? Say that's what you're dealing with. Like, for instance, the Tic Tac. Um, that thing is going to be operating at just a lot higher frame rate than you are. So, like, you know, you go and try and smash a fly that's on your leg and that zips away before yeah. your hand even gets halfway there yeah it's because the fly yeah. is just operating at a lot higher frame rate you're moving in slow-mo and the fly seeing you like a 
the Flash sees you in the Justice League movie, yeah. sees you moving real yeah. slow and kind of laughs at you and gives you the middle finger and then flies yeah. away. So it's like a laser pointer for the pilots, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, it's very possible that, yeah, we're just dealing with something that's operating at just a lot higher speed uh, mentally, whether it's alive or artificial intelligence. Uh, Tim McMillan and I talked about this when I first started working at the debrief. And I said, when I, now granted, this is a reenactment, but I watched Dave Beatty's reenactment uh, where he, he uh, it's on YouTube and you could kind of see like a 30 minute video uh, showing uh, a simulation of what the Tic Tac incident was in 2004. And when they arrive on site and, and the pilots first see the Tic Tac kind of bouncing around over the water in this erratic fashion, the first thing it brought to mind to me, because I write about science all day, is I, I can't think of the term, it's bugging me right now, but there is a movement pattern that animals do naturally. Sharks do it in the water when they're searching for food. And if you're sitting on a patio and you see like a little, a little like a like flea or whatever there, a little like a buzzer fly buzzing around and you see it kind of bouncing around in like a little circle in the midair and it has an interesting little pattern to it. That's actually a mathematical pattern that their brains do automatically to optimize the searching for food. It's the same thing with a shark. And when I was watching, now again, it's a reenactment, but it's based on the descriptions of Dietrich and Fravor of what they saw. I'm watching the thing and I go, that's what it looks like to me. It's moving like a high-speed insect or a, or a shark that's bouncing around in a medium searching for something. So yeah, the, the idea of something conscious there, I don't know that that's off the table at all. And when that thing arrives at the rendezvous point that only the, you know, the fighter jets doing the exercise know about it almost, how, how is that possible? Right? Like it's, it's almost like it becomes organic with the craft. And when even people that, you know, say that they've had experiences with, you know, uh, with extraterrestrials, there was no speaking. It just was like telepathic. So yep. they know what's coming ahead of us. Maybe they figured out time travel so that they can get here quick enough. Therefore, they just fast forward their tape to what's about to happen. Right. So yep. nope, that's, uh... maybe it's a manipulation of time. And that's how they're they're so, you know, psych or uh, psychic, I guess you could I'm, say. I'm uh, less enthusiastic about the idea of moving across time as someone that writes about science than maybe some other people, but I'm not averse to it. I'm just less enthusiastic about it. What I like to think is more likely than not, because they're discussing where their cat point is, that something is yeah. just able to listen in on their radio and calculate. It helps you sleep at night better to think that way too, right? Yeah, yeah just it's just not... It doesn't jibe with a lot of the science. There are, there is science that's open to time travel, and I've written about it more than once. And there's some, you know, people like to go to the quantum physics bin because you can get a lot of spooky action, as Einstein said in there. But uh, it's just not, it's for me, if you get into interdimensionals or time travel or supernatural explanations, it's not that they're not possibilities. It's that you need to add extra things for them to be possibilities. You don't need to add anything for ET to be a possibility. We're in a three-dimensional cosmos. We can see the other stars. We now know there are planets out there. As Avi Loeb said, 
probably <laughs> half the stars that are like our sun have planets around them. And probably half of those have Earth-like planets around them. So yeah. to me, if you're if you're hunting for a rodent in your garden, I'll start by looking in the, you know, the bushes and trees, and then I'll get into, well, maybe he's hiding in the Costco down the street. I mean, the rodent could be hiding in the Costco, but he's probably right here in the bushes and trees. So I'm not against. I, I try not to talk against time travel ideas or interdimensional because the sheer nature of reality is enough of a mystery in and of itself to say that you have any idea what any of those things are real or not is very arrogant. I would never say that. I just like to start, I, with, I like it. To say, start with the easiest it, place to look. So it's, it's not stranger than you think. It's stranger than you can think. Yeah, absolutely. It's above your pay grade. Yeah, hey, we're nowhere near. Scientists just proved the other day that Einstein was right, and time is relative at every level. Right. So basically, uh, if if you and I are standing face to face having a conversation, your time and my time are different. They're operating at a very slight relative difference. It's very small and virtually imperceptible, but we're all living in our own little bubble of reality that's operating completely on its own. See, I agree with that because sometimes at work, you swear to God that time just slowed down, right? And during yep. the weekend, it speeds up. So yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, no, that's or even in an emergency, right? Well, <laughs> even in an emergency, you, you avoid getting hit by a bus and everything slowed down and you were able to have enough time to get your faculties right. There's some good arguments. Hit in, by the bus, right? Yeah, there's some good arguments in cognitive science. That that's a real thing. The frame rate thing I was talking about, the focus thing I was talking about, and your brain, your brain basically shuts off gathering information from other places and focuses on the most critical. A car's heading right for me. Let me focus on my eyes, my ears, and my agility to get away from it and shut these other things off. And in a sense, you become superhuman for a brief period of time if the situation is critical enough. Right. So, and not just strength, not just adrenaline, but your perception, your hearing, your seeing, your focus, your reaction times, given the right set of your circumstances. Your brain kicks in. Yeah. And it shuts off the stuff it doesn't need. So, what kind of data do the scientists need at this point to prove that we are either being visited by extraterrestrials or interdimensional beings or people from the future, as you know, we, we don't know what the situation is? It could be all of them as well. That's the one thing. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that maybe that's the reason why, you know, the secret has been kept for so long. It's kind of like there's a holy crap amount of different entities coming here and doing whatever. Uh, we can't reveal that to the public. They'll go nuts, right? So so I, I, I think the holding of the secret comes down to one of two things, in my opinion. Either one, there is crashed material. So there's in, in option one, a Roswell or these other ones that may or may not have happened, 30s, 40s, whatever, that somewhere there is what, what my wife as a lawyer would call dispositive evidence, something that proves the case in and of itself, a prima facie case. And a crash ship with bodies would be that. They're clearly not human. The ship is clearly not something we made. That would be extremely dispositive evidence. So if that exists, if that if something like that happened and we have material like that, I think that in and of itself becomes the main 
thrust behind keeping this secret. The motivations are, oh, human humanity is not ready for it, or we're in the middle of a cold war and we're focused on Russia and we don't have the time to worry about this or whatever the rationale. That becomes the, the focus and the the main impetus behind keeping a secret this long. To me, the second most likely is that nobody knows the answer. So either some, or at least one of the answers, as you pointed out, and a lot of people point out, we could be dealing with multiple phenomena and maybe very much are dealing with multiple phenomena. Right. Even if you're talking an ET phenomena, even if you're just saying from a different planet, the argument people like myself make all the time is these billions of stars and billions of planets around them, the odds would be more likely that there would be multiple civilizations that can see us, that we're putting out emissions like crazy, we're big and sloppy with our light and radio waves and everything else. So we're, we're glowing on a cosmic term and we are seen and heard everywhere. Then you could have visitors here from a planet that's a couple hundred years ahead of us and visitors here from a planet that's a couple thousand years ahead of us and visitors here from a planet that are a couple million years ahead of us that maybe AI or some post-biological, post-AI, who knows what they are. So I think being open to all of those things is the right way to approach it. And I always start with, let's, let's go with the stuff that feels like something we can hunt down. So like you guys said, how do we how do we prove that? I think the the approach Avi Loeb is taking is brilliant. He's saying, look, people are regularly seeing these things in our atmosphere. Let's the get the best telescopic cameras we can and point them at those areas. The guys at UAPX have been implying for months now that they, they already did that and have some really good video and have some really good materials. So like the old school approach of just pointing cameras at the sky and looking doesn't sound that bad of approach, at least on a very basic fundamental, like obviousness. Let's get a high definition, you know, image of a craft that's clearly not something we're used to seeing in the sky. Could it still be a secret American project or foreign? Sure, but let's get that picture of that or let's get that video. Or in the alternative, if Chris Mellon and Lou Elizondo aren't lying and pictures of video of that nature exist, let's get those out. Let's get those to the American public. And the only reason those should not come out is because if it's a secret military project of our own. So if the Air Force or some secret cadre within the government has somehow maintained the legal status to operate on a project like this behind the scenes for decades now, and we really have this really kick-ass, you know, spaceship weapon thing, whatever, that no one else has, at least that's an excuse for not putting the photos and videos out but it's still not an excuse for not ultimately conveying that technology and ability to the public just by the amount of money we spend on the space program, the amount of money we spend on military, hell, the amount of money we spend on hauling, hauling cargo around the country. If you had an anti-gravity system or a zero-point energy system, uh, that basically humanity is pouring all our blood, sweat, and tears into these things we don't have to if we have that technology. So even if it is man-made, and that's the reason you're keeping the pictures and video quiet. At some point, 
that either has to come out or it has to be shown that the guys like Lou and Mellon were making that up and those photos and videos don't exist. And the best stuff we have are the three videos that were out. And I think that's the and least even, likely scenario, least likely. Even at best, those videos were not caught with the naked eye. They were with the FLIR uh, infrared yep. setting on the fighter jets. Correct. And I mean, it, that's an official Pentagon release video. And at best, it's still a grainy dot ripping through the sky, right? It adds plausibility with the telemetric data on, you know, the fighter jet screen. And you hear the excitement in the guy's voices like, hey, dude, but it makes that? it makes sense but if at, they know what our light spectrum or our visibility is, right? Sure. Like if we 100%. look at the alien abduction, they know everything about us physically. So saying, hey, they can't see an infrared. So let's just mask ourselves into infrared. So they're That's always right. around. And I always... I assume the world's kind of like a beehive, right? They're just coming in and out all the time. Could be different species here for different reasons. Uh, but even like the James Webb telescope that we have now, suppose it's like a hundred times better than uh, the Hubble. And Hubble. yeah, and this, the, th but they're going to be looking for different things though. I, I believe on James Webb, it's not set up the same yeah. as Hubble where it's just point and shoot. They're looking for, that sort of uh, light dip when a planet goes yeah. around a star, it's more in tune with trying to find stars that have uh, planets in right. the Goldilocks zone, right? In the habitable well, uh, zone. For that's not completely what James Webb is about, but you guys are right that Hubble was a visual telescope, is a visual telescope, uses visual light and essentially takes pictures that just help us inform our knowledge of the cosmos because we didn't have a good eye up there. James Webb is an IR telescope, just like the FLIR instruments. It reads in the infrared. And it's designed to do all kinds of astronomical things, from measuring supernova to distant planets to distant stars, all kinds of stuff. But among the things James Webb will be doing is looking at the atmospheres of planets right. we already know exist and already exist in the habitable zone and are rocky Earth-sized planets. So there's a, a system called TRAPPIST-1 that has about seven planets for sure that we've confirmed in there. At least three of those are right in the habitable zone. Now keep in mind in our solar system, Mars, uh, Earth, and Venus are all in the habitable zone too, based on that definition. But because of various uh, scientific reasons that I won't get into, only Earth has water still, right? Like Venus too cold, Mars is, I mean, Mars is too cold, Venus is too hot. But so that telescope is, is not looking for the transits, which is what you're talking about. That's the, uh, we have telescopes that look like that, the transit exoplanet signal, exoplanet signal survey satellite, things that look for that. It's actually going to zero in on that uh, exoplanet as it passes in front of the star and read the light spectrum of the star's light ripping through the atmosphere, just like going through a prism. And they can go, ah, it's got carbon, it's got oxygen, it's got methane, it's got hydrogen, it's got this, it's got that. And depending on the combination of gases and the volumes, you may very well find a circumstance where you go, the only way we on Earth know that combination of gases to exist is if life exists there. So uh, this was the big argument about the gas in the atmosphere of Venus, the phosphine gas they found, is they said, you know, there are natural processes that create it, but they don't exist in that atmosphere, and they definitely don't exist to create it in the volume. 
The only other way we know for that volume of phosphine gas to be created is by these little anaerobic extremophile organisms we have on Earth. So uh, yeah, it's gonna be doing more than just looking for planets. It's gonna be looking at their atmospheres. That's gonna be a first. That's a huge, huge step. Because if they start looking at rocky planets that are like Earth, and they come back and go, yeah, this one's got an atmosphere. It's got a bunch of methane and oxygen in it. And on Earth, those volumes are associated with life. And we start seeing that everywhere. It continues to change the discussion the same way just finding exoplanets changed the discussion. Yeah, it's proof of metabolism when you start seeing things like carbon dioxide and yeah. even even greenhouse gases that we have, you know, like ozone and things like that. It, sure. it, it's the same building blocks that make our place habitable. So like you said, don't go looking way out in the forest, look in the bushes right in front of you. So sure. to the best of our knowledge, what do we need to have some kind of life? Yep. And obviously we're looking, We, I mean, it's probably easy enough to say that there is microbial life because there has been microbial life that's come down on asteroids and stuff like that, right? But I guess the real question is, is there intelligent civilized life? So we um, haven't yet confirmed any life anywhere other than Earth. What we have found on meteorites and asteroids and things that come down are like amino acids that are like the building blocks. You string them together yeah. and you get like a, a yeah, peptide a chain. And then once you get enough peptide chains and you mash those together, you get things like muscle tissue or other like, uh, you know, uh, carbon-based life. So the building blocks of life uh, seem to be everywhere in the cosmos and seem to rain down on us all the time. Actual life, that's still the question. That's still the, the, the trillion dollar question is, is it here? and it was born here and this is the only place or is it omnipresent in the cosmos and once earth got able to 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 foster it it cooled down and settled down enough that those microbes settled here and evolved to the life we see you know the diversity of flora and fauna we see today so yeah no doubt about that so just to change the topic here, I want to talk about the government's sudden interest in UFOs, uh, which goes hand in hand with sure. the scientific community taking the UFOs seriously. Uh, recently, we just watched a clip of Senator Gillibrand uh, just drilling the NSA or NSA uh, Inspector General, uh, just telling him get acquainted with the subject, uh, and that was a serious thing. It was captured on video, and I'm just totally impressed with her. Uh, so, yeah, they're, they're taking a serious approach to this now. Uh, you know, a big part of the change, when you look at uh, Greer in the late 90s and his little group going around trying to get meetings with high up military people and high up Congress members to talk to them about this, that was kind of that first that first attempt to get the conversation going again, uh, like you said, pretty much since like the 50s and 60s, there was this long, quiet period. And then there was this kind of effort to like, hey, let's re-engage Congress, because for better or worse, at least in theory, we're a representative government still down here in the States. So that is the mechanism as an average person to get action in government is to go to the person who represents you and say, hey, represent me. This is something I think is important. This is something I think is critical and I need you to take it up. And what we've seen is a really positive response. I can't think of a single politician, you know, there are politicians in the US that have taken up the cause 
like a Marco Rubio and Gillibrand and these others. I can't think of one that's come out and like made fun of it or poo-pooed it. And in the old days, that was it was like a race to be the first one to come out and and, and use the phrase little green men in a derogatory way. Like that was even happening two years ago. Like as soon as Harry Reid's article uh, came out, the New York Times with quotes from him in 2020, there was this immediate, he had to backtrack. I didn't say little green men, nobody said, right? There's still that paranoia. I haven't heard that from one politician. I haven't heard one come out and say, this is a waste of our time. Why are we talking about this? And that's what I find amazing is we have we have legit representatives in the representative government championing it. And we have zero, at least publicly, coming out and going, why are we wasting our money on this? And one thing American representative government, congressmen, senators, and, and uh, representatives love to do is take an issue they know their constituency isn't behind and go out and grandstand on TV because it gets them a lot of points. I'm not hearing anyone come out and grandstand on this issue because I don't know that there are any constituents, whether they're liberal or conservative in the US, where a good portion of their constituents aren't going, this seems real. I want to know what the F is going on here. And a good thing about destigmatizing it, and maybe it came from things like changing the, the acronym UFO to UAP and making it less stigmatic to talk about and to put in government paperwork. Yep. You know, maybe that's going to make it easier for pilots to come forward and not fear that they may lose their job. And I, I if think you that's open critical. it up at a government level, it's, you know, it, it goes from there. It's funny. I was watching Chris, Chrissy uh, Newton, who uh, is our PR director and our interviewer over at the Debris. And she was interviewing Chris Mellon about the topic. And she said, I forget the wording of the sentence, but she said, you know, and it makes you wonder, Chris, if what they were seeing was a UAP or if it was an actual UFO. So I laughed to myself because I thought, I know what she means, because by actual UFO, she means alien craft. But actual yeah, UFO, again, really just means unidentified flying object, the same thing UAP does, you unidentified. But it has become so culturally connected with, if you use those three letters in that order, UFO, you're undoubtedly talking about aliens from another planet in a spaceship. Right. Right. So that term grew into that, whether we like it or not. UFO, flying saucer is what everyday people called them in the 50s. UFO was a military term, an object that's flying and it's unidentified. It felt nice and benign. And we can now study it militarily as opposed to saying a flying saucer, which has this alien connotation. So that move already happened once 70 years ago. And after 70 years of piling on the term UFO, it is so connected to aliens that even I think of it that way. When Chrissy said it in the interview, I laughed and I said, she's right. Like th that small, exactly what you said, that small, subtle language change allowed officials, people that are worried about military people worried about losing their pensions, pilots worried about losing their retirement benefits and their, their VA benefits, yeah, exactly. government officials worried about getting voted out of office because in America, we love to vote your ass out of office the minute you're in. You're, the minute you're in, we're looking for a way to get you out. And that's exactly what's happening now is that stigma has changed. And that three little, I, I resisted UAP for a while because 
you know, if you followed this long enough, you want to be right. Like some level, you want to be proven that, hey, I've been telling you guys forever that UFOs are real. And the last thing I want to happen is when the government finally comes out and says UFOs are real, they don't even use the word UFO. You're like, hey, come on. I've been watching this for 50 years. I deserve a little answer. But what it, if that change, if something that small has made it so that Congress people and senators and congressmen will talk about it and actively push legislation, military pilots will now report them. If that's what it took, heck, they could call it, you know, WWF for all I'm caring, yeah. right? Like it doesn't matter. I'll take it. I'll take the win in this case. Well, they keep coming out with new departments. And I, I mean, some of the, uh, they keep shortening it. You know, it's not like, uh, what is it now that there's like 14 letters now to the investigation. Yeah, it was a tip and now it's a a s w a. It has like, like yeah, it was a swap and a tip and now yeah, a swap. There you A-O-I, go. A O I M S G. I think now. Yeah something government loves acronyms because it, it safeguards them from future freedom of information act request they don't have to worry oh shit is there something in there that we have to worry about so if it's an acronym only a handful of people in the right positions know about they really don't have to worry about future foia yeah. requests you know i didn't even think of it that way interesting good thinking louis good thinking well, I'd take that as a compliment, <laughs> Mr. Plain. You Look did ask to be referred to as Mr. Plain, so yes, that's I, right. I better scratch that itch. <laughs> I love it. So is there anything um, juicy coming out on the debrief? Like, have you guys got any nice articles that we can anticipate and look forward to uh, concerning this subject? Uh- so I tell people all the time, first of all, I don't want to lose my job, so I won't give you anything too uh, critical. Fair enough. <clears throat> But I will say this, Um, the answer is yes, we are working on things. And my single favorite part of this job is also the single most frustrating, is we're always chasing stuff behind the scenes and you can't talk about it before there's enough meat to it. But some of it is so media go, man, I wanna just go out and start talking about this now. And when you start getting in the area of, you know, the physical stuff we're talking about, photos and videos and those sort of things, or you start getting into the area of new testimonies or things like that, it gets very exciting as a debrief staff member and as a guy who's, who's entrusted to be in on these meetings to talk about what we're talking about. And I've, I've got myself in trouble once or twice with it as well. So What I will tell you is, I believe the best stories from the debrief are yet to come. And we've run some great ones. But stuff I believe was being worked on now, stuff I am personally working on that I can at least say, and stuff I know that the guys are working on. And we have Kenna Castlebury, and we have Candy Chan, and we have Raquel Santos. We have a bunch of great writers over there. We have Jazz Shaw still out beating the bushes. But yeah, those three founders, those guys made their bones as investigative reporters. So a guy like me who investigates science and bumps up against the UFO topic and ends up writing about it now, I enjoy about it, and I hear really neat things, and I have people coming to me with stuff about, you know, warp bubbles and anti-gravity and exotic propulsion and stuff that 
that are legit leads that feel like I might have some exciting stories coming out of those. As far as those guys and the UFO stuff and all that, I can promise everyone they they are not resting. They are on the job. And if I were to guess, I'd say stuff is coming in the next few months here. Right. So, so 2022 is... I think this whole year is going to be insane. I think by the time we reach the end of this year, January is going to, or February is going to feel like forever again. Right. That's good news for ufology, definitely. Yep. And we're not the only people out there working. You know, keep in mind when you see really good reporters, Brian Bender and people like that pop up on Politico or they pop up at these other places and they're writing, those same people are working behind the scenes. I mean, you know, uh, I get friend requests on LinkedIn from people I never thought of of, uh, connecting to that then reach out to me and go, hey, I'm working on this. Can you help me confirm this or this? So there's a community i would say there's a gold rush attitude about this right now because so much is happening if you could get a leak from avi Loeb the first time he has a photo or if you could get something from nasa the first time they have a new piece of video or or some sensor reading or something from a satellite or if you could get something from one of these different government groups you know there's so many moving entities now that it's not this monolithic banging your head up against the wall, trying to get the DOD to cough over the Roswell debris. This is a number of organizations approaching it from a number of different places. And for investigative reporters, that not only creates a new set of places for you to go to, but it creates a whole new environment where People come to us, you know, that's the, I love going to the debrief inbox and getting the tips we were getting. Now, don't get me wrong. A lot of the tips are like, hey, I spoke to Klaatu, the alien, when I was three, <laughs> and he, he he gave me the lottery numbers for next week's lottery. And if you guys will front me 10 grand, I'll split the prize right. with you, you know, right? So like we did at the debrief, you definitely get that. But you also get things that are just like, Hi, I'm an ex-fighter pilot. Does anyone want to hear my story? Please give me a call. And you go, woohoo! Great. I can't wait to call that guy, right? So, uh, yeah, this is, the environment's just different. It's just a different world. I wouldn't even be writing about it. I told the guys when I started here, I got my own writing career. I put my own novels out. I get freelance writing on the side. I've worked on a few screenplays and TV projects and stuff. And I'm very happy doing what I'm doing. And I joined on to write about science because it would be fun, a neat way to promote my books. But while I've been in here, I've gotten to, to witness the, the change in ufology from, from 1947 to 2017, no matter how you slice it, is 70 years of one thing. And 2017 to today and continuing is four years and change of something completely different. And I will go to my grave saying that. I've been following this subject since 1977. I was in the library getting yelled at by my mom when I was 11 years old because the UFO books were in the occult section. Oh no! And she's very religious, and she was she was convinced I was going to join a cult or become a, a you know a, a satanic shaman or something because I'm reading about UFOs. And I tell people all the time, just from my first hand, following this thing for that period of time, for 45 years of my life, the last four are completely different. This is all new territory. This many authors, this many researchers, 
politicians, pilots, astronauts, you name it. You know, uh, uh, Tom DeLonge's going to be a blip. You know, yeah. these sort of like, I can't believe a guy got in here and he got these people together and he got their videos and created this group. That's just one moment in time now. And that thing would have carried us the whole decade of the 90s. Uh, A-tip would have been enough to get you through the whole decade and write 20 books about it. And researchers would talk about it. Now, every week, every month, there's something new. And yes, we're working on stuff on the horizon. You mentioned NASA. NASA has been way too quiet on this issue. Uh, it'd be nice to hear something from them to, you know, because you, you got uh, Avi Loeb, like you mentioned. Uh, you have the silence from the Air Force and silence from NASA as well. So is NASA changing as far as you know? Are they changing their opinion on this? So, well, first of all, the best thing to happen about NASA and this was Bill Nelson coming over. He's a former astronaut. He was on the Senate, uh, I think, Armed Services Committee, maybe, or Intelligence Committee when he was a senator. Okay. There's a, a very good feeling among the UFO community that he has seen these classified photos and videos. And that's why he's so wide-eyed when he discusses the subject. What I think needs to happen at NASA, now that he's in charge, and he's come out in multiple interviews and said, this is what we do. Searching for life is what NASA does. And we should be part of this effort. That I, I think the next thing we're trying to get out of him, and I know I've put in requests to his office and to some other people, because I have some contacts. I wrote a bunch of stories about Perseverance. You know, I write NASA. I've probably written 35 or 40 NASA stories in the last oh, year. Wow. So I have a bunch of contacts over there. And what I'm trying to get my hands on is typically even something this informal, where Nelson said in three or four different interviews, I'm going to have people look at this. This is our job. We are going to look at UAPs. Once you say that in that sort of position in NASA, typically what happens is you create a mission. And with that mission, you get a mission director, you get a mission budget, you get a mission plan, you get various projects within the mission that will accomplish that mission. So say, for instance, it's the Perseverance rover. You have a mission director, you have all the mission planners. One mission planner is working on where are we going to go? One mission planner is working on what are we going to look for, these different things. One group is working on the helicopter, the engineer. So if they're serious about addressing the UAP topic, and it wasn't just something he's thrown out in a few interviews in the last few months, this is the next step that would normally happen at NASA. You would have a UAP mission, whatever they want to call it, and then you would have a person at NASA who's a scientist who's in charge of that. They would have scientists working under them. They would have an allocated budget. They would have mission parameters. Here's the timeline. Here's where we're going to issue our first report. Here's what we're trying to locate or determine. Here's the data we're going to try and source. We're going to reach out to the military for this. Or we're going to reach out to Avi Loeb for that. And all of that would typically be defined in a NASA mission. You know, they're scientists. Everything is about planning and preparation. So when you get to the execute part, it really is just pushing buttons. And so... That's what we saw with the James Webb was 30 years of work. The James Webb was announced in 1989, right? And 
30 years of work. So when that thing got up to LaGrange too, and they started opening the shields and unfolding the, the mirror and all these things, those things just happened like clockwork because decades of work ahead of time. So if NASA's real and they're really going to look into this and he's not just saying it, then we should see that sooner rather than later. And I know I'm not the only writer chasing that, but and I think I'm the only debrief writer chasing it. Mm -hmm. But I've heard from other people that we're trying to get NASA to say, you know, name a project, name a leader, name a budget, name goals, do all of those things. So there's an official contact point so we can reach out to them and say, where are you guys at on this? Where, what are you finding? What's being done? Right. And uh, I think that's got to come sooner rather than later, or uh, there will have to be uh, an acknowledgement that there isn't going to be that. Right. And if that's, if, if that acknowledgement comes, if he comes out or NASA comes out and says, now we're not going to do any of that, then it, then it was just lip service. Then uh, there's not really a formal role for NASA in this, but that's not how it feels. Right when he was showing up at the Washington Cathedral's event with Avril Haines there, and he's showing up to see, you know, he's the one bringing it up in interviews. They were talking about Trappist One that I was talking about, James Webb, and Nelson was the one to go, hey, you guys saw the video and you talked to the pilots, and he's, he's bringing a search for life via NASA with telescopes in the atmosphere of another planet to a conversation about Tic Tacs. Right. So uh, he's the one tying that together. And I think that's why that's so exciting because he's the top dog over there. What he says goes at NASA. Well, I hope you're right. I hope that uh, they come up with something soon. It'd be nice to hear from NASA on this for sure. Uh, Louis, do you have a, a final question for our guest today? No, I would just, uh, I, uh, I watched one of your previous podcasts and I liked the fact that, you know, I think uh, you were basically saying, you know, life out there is a given and you give it a very positive yep. Um, and, but yet, you know, it's not frou-frou, you know, like people always say, really extraordinary claims need extraordinary evidence, but evidence as people define it is, is, is difficult. How do you get something tangible that the military can barely get on video and things like that? So we're taking something very abstract, very complex, and we're trying to dumb it down to our perspective level, you know, like you eat an elephant one bite at a time. And uh, like you said, it's coming from everywhere. It's coming from NASA. It's coming from the government. It's almost like somebody realized that, hey, we've been keeping this a secret for so long. If it comes out, the government knew the whole time, it's going to be tough to regain the trust of the people you've been boldface lying to for 70 years. So yep. the trickle effect is desensitizes people. I'm sure, you know, uh, you poll people, I'm sure more than half believe yeah, it's plausible, and and most people, well, I would think, think it's more than plausible, right? Yep. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's definitely good news to hear, and uh, yeah, I just more wanted to say thanks for being on the show and taking the time to be with us. We really enjoyed it. You have uh, uh, the similar perspective that we do, and you chat with a lot more big shots than uh, we have in the last three months, so... Thanks for enlightening us, because I certainly learned yeah, something I today. I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, like Louis said, you, you have a lot of information. You're a very smart individual. You speak very well as well, which is uh, it's, it's nice to learn from people like yourself. So thank you so much for coming on. Uh, just a, a lot of time listening to my own voice, as my mom would say. Oh, Chris likes the sound of his own voice, so that's what my mother well, you know, So yeah, I appreciate it, guys. And uh, just towards your point, uh, I, I think we're in a new we're in a new place 
scientists coming out of college, they're looking at astrobiology as a career. NASA employs astrobiologists. Just again, 20 years ago, when I was you know 30 years old, just the idea that NASA would have somebody whose job it is to study life on another planet. When NASA was really in the business uh, of the, they were very lockstep with the military of that's pie in the sky, that's wackadoo, UFOs, we don't talk about that, we don't think about that, we're looking for comets or supernova or whatever. No, NASA's mission now, look at everything they're doing. What is the rover on Mars looking for? Signs of life. When you hear all the neat things that that uh, James Webb is going to do, and you read about all the science missions that plan for that, you know what everyone asks about and asks me about, and what I ask about are the ones that have them searching for life, and that's what they do. And I think that change, that that happened in with. I don't want to get too far out because we're at the end of this interview, but guys. In 1995, when we spotted the first planet around another star, this entire conversation's changed from a theoretical one to a practical one. We see planets everywhere. Now we're just asking, is life on any of them? Process of elimination at this point. Yep. Yeah, I hope uh, I hope we find another planet that's just as lit as ours is at nighttime. It looks like Las Vegas, so <laughs> it's it's not too bad. Chris, I thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. And where can people follow you if they want to follow your work? I, I the, the first of all, I just tell people all the time: go to thedebrief.org. We've got a great group of writers, great group of founders. Thedebrief.org. Everyday science news, technology news, UAP news. You're going to find it there. For me personally, the easiest way is just on Twitter. I'm at Plain, which is my last name, P-L-A-I-N, underscore fiction, because I am a fiction author. So at Plain, underscore fiction. Perfect. Christopher, once again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate you having me on. It was a great time today.